My name is Rick Kleffel, and I'm speaking with Mitch Cullen and Laurie R. King. Mitch Cullen is the author of six novels, including Tideland, Branches, A Novel in Verse, and Wampy Jod. His new novel, A Slight Trick of the Mind, finds Sherlock Holmes at the age of 93, living in a remote farmhouse in Sussex after the Second World War. Laurie R. King is the author of 16 novels, including eight novels featuring the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and Mary Russell. Locked Rooms, her latest novel, finds Holmes and Russell in San Francisco in 1924. Welcome to the show, Mr. Cullen and Ms. King. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Tell me, what is the eternal appeal of the character of Sherlock Holmes? Let's start with you, Mitch. Oh, boy. I'm not sure I, I've figured that one out myself. I, 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 I'm, I'm shocked by it. I, I suppose when I started even writing this book, I wasn't even sure if there was an appeal for him anymore. But I think it has something to do with the fact that he, he was created as this kind of ultimate rationalist. And I think especially in, in a world that at times feels increasingly irrational and strange, that it, he seems like kind of an oasis of reason. Laurie? I beg to differ. I would say that the, the appeal is the fact that despite his rationality, he is also intensely emotional. And it's very interesting in the Conan Doyle stories, the sparsity with which you find these emotional outbursts, but how illuminating they are when they come. So that when, <laughs> when, when a Holmes n- nearly, nearly manages to kill his good friend Watson and he comes dragging him out of this situation in which he's nearly murdered him, he, he opens his heart to, to Watson and Watson says that it, you know, it, it really made him feel good that Holmes was worried about him. And similarly, when Watson gets shot and, and Holmes says that if, if he had died, he would have not allowed the villain to you know to walk away this is a real revelation and so it, this this interesting combination of a man under intense control and yet um he is extremely emotional underneath i think is his appeal i'd like you each to tell me a little bit about your novels and to give the readers a sense of each of your novels mitch in a nutshell, I would say my novel is about an, an aging man who just happens to be Sherlock Holmes, who's struggling with issues of memory and his place in the world. And we're talking 1947. And I think in, in its most basic level, that's what the novel is about. Laurie, tell us a little bit about what you've done. It's very interesting. Both both Mitch and Michael Shaban have written books with Holmes about the same age, and it's almost as if um, they wanted to present Holmes as looking at the ultimate mystery, because he's really on the verge of death, and that's you know it's there, what forty thirty five years beyond what I what I am working with Holmes, but. Um, but it's very interesting that the two of them had come out with these these novels at the same time, that um, that that great mystery is lurking just around the corner for the two. So that's what Mitch's book is about. <laughs> 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 My books actually are not about Sherlock Holmes; they're about Mary Russell. And in fact, I really have to correct you that um, they are not uh, Holmes and Ru- Holmes and Russell books. They are Russell and Holmes books. So you ought to know this by now, Rick. You, you've <laughs> yeah. interviewed me before. <laughs> um, that they are looking at a young woman who is, in effect, the same person as Holmes. Only she is young, female, and of the twentieth century. Therefore, <clears throat> vastly superior to the Victorian male Holmes. However, 
um, it is it is a way of looking at that mind. If you took treated a mind as a sort of engine that could be transplanted into a different chassis, um, what difference it makes to a person when the when the person is female and interested in theology and of the 20th century rather than a Victorian male detective. I'd like each of you to tell me your early years with Sherlock Holmes, how you first encountered him. I know that, that Mitch has a very interesting history with Sherlock Holmes. And Lori, I don't think you've ever told me how you first found Sherlock Holmes. I actually came to Holmes as an adult, um, which perhaps makes a difference in how I look at him. I didn't start reading Holmes other than, I mean, everybody reads, what is it, The Hound of the Baskervilles and the uh, you know one of the one of the short stories in maybe the speckled band in in high school but other than that i hadn't really read the home stories and probably there were a fair number of them i never had come across until i started writing the character of mary russell and i knew that she was meeting holmes and that she was similar to him and that therefore i had to know of his background before i could really introduce him as a character so i came as a as it were a virgin <laughs> mitch uh, well i I was a virgin when I came to Sherlock. Yeah, Mitch, you lost your virginity a long time ago. <laughs> but but, uh, but I think it origi- the original interest came on Sunday mornings um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, when WG in Chicago was a cable station, and every Sunday they showed the old Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies, and I think it was the Scarlet Claw that hooked me. It was that one, and it just so happened as I started getting into into the the character Sherlock Holmes, it came through cinema. Uh, I read an article in the Santa Fe, New Mexico, or it was given to me by my father, an article in the Santa Fe, New Mexican that pointed out that the man who owned the world's largest Sherlock Holmes collection in, in the world at that time lived right down the street from us. And so one day I pedaled my bike over there and kind of sheepishly knocked on the door. And this very large man, John Bennett Shaw, answered. And uh, he seemed delighted that somebody so young would have an interest. And he took me into his library, and uh, he showed me around, and um, a great friendship blossomed from that. And I ended up house-sitting his library. And then I hit puberty, and my interest waned a bit at that point. And John's since passed on, but his library is now the John Bennett Shaw Library at the University of Minnesota, I believe, is where it all went when he, when he went. Tell us, you wrote a screenplay as a teenager, didn't you? I did. See, now, you know, that's come up, and I, that's from that USA Today article that when I was 15 and had all that hair. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I don't remember it. So I don't, I, I know I must have had it. I must have been working on something, this epic Sherlock Holmes screenplay about his life, but for the life of me, I can't, and I've looked for it. I don't know, I don't know. I, maybe I told the reporter that because I intended to, but I can't find it. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what that's about. <laughs> An alternate universe you actually did yeah, write it. Uh, yeah, exactly. One of the major topics of the Sherlock Holmes novels, a subtext, is the transition from the 19th to the 20th century. I wonder if you would like to each speak about how you treat that transition. Mitch, we're already in the well into the middle of it in your novel, and Laurie, we're still overhanging in. Your novels, aren't we? It's got up to 1924, right? So tell us, how does that inform your novels, that transition? Because well, it's the, really important. The the last of the Conan Doyle Holmes stories is set in the beginning of the, of the Great War um, in August of 1914. Conan Doyle wrote stories after that, but they were all set before that. So it was quite apparent to Conan Doyle and 
to the communities at large that Holmes would not have survived the war in the same way that England did not survive the war. After the Great War, England was not the same place. And a Victorian gentleman who embodies rationality and the triumph of mind over chaos would not have managed to crawl out the other end of that that carnage in the in the trenches of 1418. So that when I introduce Holmes, it's 1915, in the middle of the war, and the changes that he undergoes in, in my books over the following nine years are similar to the changes that take place in the country as a whole. The huge social changes, you know, women given the vote, and the death taxes that meant the aristocracy was whittled down, and the personality of Holmes rises and meets the challenge in a way that Conan Doyle didn't believe he could. Mm. But I, I, think, I think he was bigger than Conan Doyle gave him credit for. Mitch? Well, I want to say one thing about Laurie's books is that it always struck me that Mary struck me as kind of the future of, of where where we were headed. And Holmes was this kind of, it, was, it seemed like they were a crossroads that met of him existing in this kind of previous world. And Mary is this where we're heading. That's that always, that's, I don't know if you intended that, but that just always felt that there, the age difference and her uh, feminism and her her idea of, of, of herself as an individual seemed more modern to me than, than perhaps where Holmes was coming from. I think that's, a, that's inevitable in writing about a young woman and an older mm, man. Yeah. But I think, too, that as the books go along, not only does Russell adopt some of Holmes's values and ways of doing things, mm. but I think Holmes develops um, an appreciation for the way that Russell does things and adopt some of some of her attitudes. So I think that he he grows. That's quite evident in the new book in some of the scenes where he meets Dashiell Hammett, which yeah. is a really oh, delightful yeah. set piece. This was an interesting book to write because in it the heroine is incompetent. I mean, she she is so she's having so many difficulties with wrapping her mind around the gaps in her past that she becomes unreliable. And so it's it is Holmes's book in a way that none of the others have been. Well, certainly in, in terms of the way the story is told, and I want to get back to that a little bit later, but I do want to focus now on the birth of forensics. Holmes is really the birth of forensics in fiction, and, and in many ways, in fact, too, and we're seeing now a, a resurgence and the triumph, really, of forensics in, uh, in, as a crime-solving technique. I'm wondering if you would like to talk about that how that works. It stems from the core of Holmes's character, that cold analytical sense. Yeah, I think as far as fiction goes, certainly Holmes um, was the embodiment of the forensic science, that is, development of, of fingerprints. And um, he's looking at, when we first meet him, he's looking at blood and how you can determine whether something is, is blood or whether, you know, these early tests... Um, it's hard to imagine now looking at a stain and not knowing, not being able to tell whether not only is it blood, but is it human or animal. And as a writer, it makes for an interesting shift in how you put a story together because, of course, you can't depend on any of that evidence in the way that you can. I, I write another series that is a modern police. I, I suppose they're police procedurals for lack of any other, better term. But, you know, the way that evidence is gathered now is so hugely different. But yeah, Holmes, Holmes, would have, 
Holmes would have welcomed the computer. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think he would have loved it, actually. Uh, yeah. I think he would have loved all this stuff that mystifies me now. You know, I'm not so sure about cell phones. I want to talk a little bit about what it is about Holmes that has made it possible for other writers to work with him as a character and succeed as writers. I mean, you guys are both very successful. You're both get, getting great critical reaction. There are great books, both of them. What is it about this character that makes it possible for you guys to pluck him from Arthur Conan Doyle's work, place him into your own, and still write a great book? I think in, in the case of, of my novel, and it was that I was able to pick up Holmes at the point that Doyle kind of left him which was retired and out in, in Sussex and didn't give us a whole, he gave us little bits of information about homes out there on the Sussex, Sussex Downs, but it was kind of uncharted territory. And I think that appealed as someone who considers themselves a literary novelist. And um, that was more appealing to me than, I think I would have failed horribly had I tried to gone back, go back into the um, Victorian era and set it in, in the period of time in which Doyle was... Um, creating his Sherlock Holmes stories. I don't, I'm not sure I could have pulled it off as well. So I had some freedom to, to you know, roam around with Holmes. And that's appealing to me because I could then approach it as fiction. Well, what made you choose Sherlock Holmes as your character instead of just Joe Anonymous? Yeah, well, I mean, originally it was Joe Anonymous. It was, it was an old English soldier. And uh, it was more, I had more of a, if it was a pastiche, it was more of an E.M. Forrester pastiche in mind of, of, of an old, incredulous English gentleman going to a culture that was very different than his own and, and being kind of annoyed by it and and uh, and, uh, and and at the same time finding something there that, that drew him, kind of like Passage to India or one of those kind of books. And I just, in outlining and trying to cr define the character in my head, I kept going back to Sherlock Holmes, you know, this this kind of person. And at some point it just became Sherlock Holmes. But I didn't really feel that I was doing a typical pastiche until toward the end when I wrote the glass harmonica sections of the book, which then required me to really pay attention to Doyle's writing and the style and the, the settings and the periods. Uh. It sounds to me like you're saying that the character itself of Holmes had a kind of gravity that just sucked you down into the gravity well, the Holmes gravity well. Well, it did. Sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he's a big character. I mean, at some point, there were times when I was working on it that I was clearly not conscious. I mean, I wasn't so tuned into the fact that I was working on Sherlock Holmes. I think maybe that's what I had to do for myself at times so I wouldn't go nuts and and get too bogged down into this huge character that, that looms large and will loom large long after I'm gone, you know. Initially, it was daunting. When I decided on Sherlock Holmes, it was, it was daunting. And I thought, how am I going to grapple with the, the history of this character? And m the little trick I did for myself was make the character dismissive of his past and his history and the, the, the Doyle-Watson stories, you know. Um, and then they freed him up for me a little bit to kind of do with him what I wanted. But this book for me is even stranger because it, it tie, I have a hard time separating it out from the events going on in my personal life. You know, my, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and was very ill. Uh, my grandmother was dying, and she had almost lived into three centuries. And um, these were things that, that kind of informed and, and shaped me as as I was working on this. This is stuff that the reader isn't privy to and shouldn't be and, and, and doesn't affect the reading of the book, but those all played into some of the choices I made while writing it. You really evoke that sensibility and do it quite successfully. Thank you. Lori? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think you hit it on the nose there with the um, the idea of Holmes being so weighty he pulls your your storyline, your prose, and your mind into his direction. And I think that is typical of um, 
any character who embodies a, a, an archetype, to use the, the Jungian term, if you have a character who is mythic in power, he's going to tug you aside um, no matter what you're trying to do. And you can either go with it and sort of swing yourself into the, into his orbit, or or you can place yourself against him. Um, but I think again, part of the appeal of Holmes is that he is he is the the wounded healer. He is a man who obviously has um, you. You don't become quite so aloof from humanity without reason. And he is the um, the mind with heart, so that these. These juxtapositions of character um, give him a tremendous authority and power that make it both difficult to work with him and easy. I think one thing you just said strikes me as very true. Sherlock Holmes as mind, because so many heroes and archetypes that we see are embodied by their actions and defined by their actions. Sherlock Holmes seems to be, uh, he, his actions are his thoughts, yeah, he he makes no bones in the story about in the stories in the Conan Doyle stories about um depending on Watson as his as his action person. Mm-hmm. Whenever he he says so out front to to Watson that he would no more think of doing this that or the other without Watson than you know it would just be unthinkable to to go into action without his troops as it were. But um he he his is the action board of the of the chess player, exactly equally vicious to anything with guns and guns and fists, but um, not quite as much blood. I want to talk to about the style of writing in persons, as it were, because both of you write these, and for you, Laurie, this is new uh, to get this into a third person narrative. Yeah. Uh, with Holmes, and uh, Doyle wrote his material in the first person. Much of what you write, Mitch, is in the third person, mm-hmm. except for some of the uh, sections where you have Sherlock Holmes himself writing. I'd like you to talk about just the literary techniques that both you're doing, both of you are using. It's really fascinating. And Laurie, as I say, her new most of her novels are told from the first person. Of from point, Mary Russell's point of view. From right. Mary Russell's point of view. But here, for the first time, we get a third-person omniscient narrator that's closely tracked to Sherlock Holmes. Well, again, you you find in the book that Russell is is not dependable. Her memories are failing her. She can't trust her her memories and her way of putting her past together. So that there was a point at which I realized that writing from her point of view was going to become increasingly awkward. And at that point I started writing. It it didn't fit to write first person Holmes. It it didn't really seem to fit in there. But to write third person, which follows both Holmes and Dashiell Hammett as they move through the investigation involving Russell, was it was an interesting experience um to to find a language for that character for Holmes that was not Russell. Now, I, I I don't know if I should mention this in this context, but the book that I'm writing now actually centers, it's a Martinelli book set in the oh, good. 21st century, but it centers around a Sherlock Holmes manuscript, which is written in the first person. So I've, I've taken, you know, taken the Russell books and then 
moved into looking through Holmes's eyes, but not through his own mouth. And now I've gone to the extreme, and I, I have actually written a pastiche. So I am I am shameless. I am a, a Sherlock Holmes pastiches now. <laughs> Mitch, tell us a little bit about what you do. It's fa- fascinating and really well executed. Well, actually, Laurie kind of hit on some of the same reasons why I chose the omniscient voice is that I was dealing with a character whose whose memory was going and whose whose um, uh, opinion couldn't always be um, counted on to be accurate. And uh, but also I I knew that that at some point there was going to be the first person voice of of Sherlock Holmes in the narrative. And so to have it just it was it was one of those choices you make. It just seemed if you had too much first person narrative that this idea of, I mean, at some point, even in the Sherlock Holmes, where he's writing in the glass harmonica section, he goes into omniscient voice because he's writing about himself in disguise. And he's created this character that he's, he's, um, uh, he's, he's portraying. And he's referring to this person and talking about this man's actions uh, in kind of omniscient voice, even though it's Sherlock Holmes. So there was a little bit of that desire to create multiple perspectives and and going from plus you an omniscient voice you 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 get to be godlike and 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 examine the motivations of different characters and the things they they may say or do uh that may be contrary or or one might not be privy to it just opens it up i've done both i've done first person novels too and and uh and there's times i've written first drafts in the first person and then change it to omniscient voice and it'll open it up and change it in ways that i didn't expect but um, and this one, it was pretty had you know pretty straightforward reason for doing it. One thing it sounds you both share in common with your newest novels is they both involve the famous unreliable narrator. Hmm. And I'm surprised that you were able to kind of resist the lure of, of using that. Often, that's something that that a writer will pursue. Well, in a series that's narrated by. A first-person individual, you you can only be unreliable so often. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you know, I I think uh, unless you're you're trying to do a um, the equivalent of what, who is the author of the um, the unusual um, incident, Mark, the dog of the nighttime, Mark Mark Haddon. Had- Mark Haddon. Had- yeah. You know, I mean, if he were to do a series out of that particular character, you'd know you were in bad hands all the way, <laughs> which would really be interesting. But um, but unless Russell really loses it, I think, you know, she probably will return to her general sense of competence after a while. Well, I, I, I'm personally just fascinated by the unreliability of memory. Uh, and as I, I, I don't often trust my own. And um, and we, <laughs> somebody who's invented an entire teenage manuscript, I think it's probably just as well that you there's, mistrusted. There's tons I don't even know that I, apparently I'm supposed to know. And uh, as I'm learning with this book, people are, you know, telling me, oh, well, did you know you did this? And I have no idea. <laughs> well, I'll take credit for it anyway. But uh, uh, so just just the unreliability, uh, unreliability of memory fascinates me. And, and seeing people that I, I know whose memory I always thought were, were particularly sharp and and keen to see their memory slip in ways that they're not aware of uh, or apparently not aware of uh, scares me and fascinates me at the same time. And so, so to apply it in a narrative, um, it's, a, it's a bit fun as well, you know, to see how, what you can do with it. One thing you both do and do very well with your Sherlock Holmes stories is to have the character confront his own existence as a fictional character. (laughs) (laughs) This is really delightful. It's very tricky. It's very smart. Tell us a little bit about how, why, and when you do that. Laurie? 
Yeah, it's 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 one of the things that I introduced. I, I think it was in in Beekeeper where she she mentions how odd it is to um, to find herself allied allied with what the world considers a fictional character, and she begins to feel a little fictional herself, which of course yeah. she is. But <laughs> <laughs> and and I was interested in one of the reviews for for Locked Rooms, the current book. Um, someone makes the point that here you have. In the context of fiction, you have a fictional character meeting a an actual character who will be known as a force in fiction. So it, it, you get a little dizzy thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, it's dizzying to read, but really fun. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I wrote the entire book. I had intended Dashiell Hammett to have a walk-on part because he was in San Francisco. And I thought, well, you know, 1924 San Francisco, you have to have Dashiell Hammett walking through. Unfortunately, he rather took the book over, and I hadn't intended this um, at all. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the book, I suddenly realized that Hammett has a family. (laughs) 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 And I finished the book, and it was in in Bound Galleys, and it suddenly occurred to me they were doing a thing up in San Francisco dedicating one of his apartments. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God. Dashiell Hammett was a real person. He's got a daughter, a granddaughter, a great-granddaughter. They're all going to be there. Oh, dear. <laughs> you were very polite. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's just there's in, uh, there was something very – and it came later or in, in the midst of writing this book at some point when I realized that, that I was reading writing about the fictionalized real life of a, a man who was not too happy with the fictions that had been written about him. And it just, it, there's something, it's, it, I would be lying if I didn't say there was something that was just perversely amusing about it to myself that, that I got a personal kick out of. I didn't know if anybody else would. Um, oh, I, yes. Uh, yeah, okay. Cause I, and, and I don't, and I, the, the idea that also that he would have fans and, and mystery writers sending him galleys. You know, I figured if he really existed and he lived that long, um, what would he have to contend with? You know, blurbs, people wanting him to blurb their books and things like that. It just seemed too, too it was just too much fun for, at, at that point, you know, to, to stop. I want to talk about the emotional life of an unemotional character. And, and Laurie has, has talked about this a bit. In a way, I always thought that um, Sherlock Holmes was the model for Mr. Spock. Yeah, yeah, very similar. And Spock would not have been that character had he been simply a, I'm sorry, a Vulcan. Yes. Uh, what the years? Uh, right. you know, if he if he had actually been unemotional, he would not have been as interesting a character. That's one of the reasons why Sherlock Holmes is so interesting. Mitch, tell us a little bit about how you developed that internal tension between the mastermind and the decaying machine that he's trapped mm. inside. Well, certainly there were real people I could look at who, who, were, who, who were going through. Well, Stephen Hawking's is a great example of an amazing mind trapped in a, a body that's not, you know, hosting him very well. Um, but Holmes always struck me a little bit as kind of a brain in a vat, just that he, he had a body that, that worked, you know. Uh, he, he, he didn't seem particularly interested in, in, in sex and, or women, and uh, th- that happened later in life. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and he really just seemed a, a guy that was just driven by the mind. He liked he, – that's also one of the things that kind of fasc- – I mean, I, I'm, Doyle's practical reasons for retiring Sherlock Holmes instead of killing him off again 
makes sense. But but I, I, I always thought it was odd for a, a character that so loved the game and so loved being involved and who's, who's, who would go into fits of depression if he wasn't involved in something would suddenly shuffle off to Sussex and quit. You know, it just seemed very strange. But yeah, I, I, I thought that probably, at least in my story, that Sherlock Holmes being so aware, although I don't know how emotionally he was aware of himself, but being such a, a man aware of what his mind was doing uh, would would sense its decay, would sense that something wasn't quite firing right and, and uh, would probably go to great lengths to try to to preserve it, you know. And that's why we get the royal jelly. Yeah. Eating the royal jelly, it's yeah. a really great detail. Yeah. It's, it's very fun. Laurie, tell me a little bit about how you managed to marry off Sherlock Holmes and, and yet not have the novels turn into really romances. That's a really difficult feat, I would say. I think that a lot of Sherlockians were very nervous when they first came across my books because they they assumed that they were going to be romances. Um, and and it's only now with about the what is it the eighth novel that they're beginning to relax and realize that there's not that there's not going to be any hot scenes in these you know <laughs> the brushing of the hair is about as steamy as things get so the the whole business of marrying off Holmes was probably in large part just practical if you're talking about two people in the teens and twenties um, who want to become a partnership, it is extremely difficult, even in the 20s, and certainly at the beginning of the 20s, for a man and a woman to travel around, to spend the night together, to to live in each other's pockets um, without being married. So just for sheer practical purposes, it was easier to have them fully partners. But I, I thought that because of the way Holmes was in my mind, that it would be unlikely that he would develop a partnership that was less than full. So that if he has a partnership with a woman, um, it would only be someone who is uh, enough like him that um, that he can be fully himself and who would be able to speak his language and um, the two of them would be you know, a couple um, in in all ways. There's a, a sense of Holmes as a father figure. I'd like you both to talk about that. Mitch, it's very clear in your novel. It wasn't hard for me because in in certainly in a literary sense, he was a bit of a father figure to me because I was a, a kid that, that lived in those books and, and thought it would be really great to hang out with this guy, you know, if I only could. And so... It, in in that way, I, it wasn't hard for me to envision him as a, a father figure. And I think people look towards men in particular or women that they feel are are uh, somehow solid and safe and reliable as as uh, as figures that they they would want to help them along or nurture them along. So uh, Sherlock Holmes is appealing that way. Although now I would rather have Miss Hudson around. I think she would be would make help my life considerably. Tell us a little bit about the characters for whom he becomes a father figure in your novel and how you bring them into the narrative, and especially Mr. Yumazaki. Mm. The scenes with him, uh, with Holmes and Hiroshima, are particularly powerful. What what made you do that? Uh, well, I mean, Hir- Hiroshima, for me anyway, w- was very symbolic of, of 
the the beginning of the age that I grew up in and became aware of. And it, to me, it was kind of the epicenter for this modern age that, that we're in now. And it was also, you know, I'm sure there are other examples that were before, but it seemed a very clear um, sign of of, of the horror and, and, and uh, questionable as- aspects of science and technology. And, um, but just, just in terms of, of their story, well, and also because it, it was a, a point in time for the Japanese where their sense of culture and identity and who they were were thrown and called into questions. And so for Sherlock Holmes to be in the same boat, it, it, you know, they worked kind of, for me anyway, on that level. Uh, the book itself is, it has a, a number, well, at least two or three fatherless men or fatherless man and a fatherless boy in which Holmes, um, whether uh, willingly or unwillingly, um, has become a, a father figure for them somehow, symbolically somebody who they look to as, as kind of uh, making sense of, of what it is not to have a, a father figure around or, or help them find who their father is, you know. And it seems like I, I know a lot of, of people who've grown up fatherless or motherless and, you know, and it just seems that whether they want to admit it or not, it's it's something that shapes them and, and quietly haunts them. And, and uh, it's something that, that it's not a major part of the book, but it's there and it interests me. Laurie, tell us a little bit about how that works in your novel. It's a little bit touchier, isn't it? It's, it was really tricky writing the transition between the first book, where he is clearly a father figure. Um, you first meet Russell a few months after she, had lo- she has lost her family in an accident. And she, she loved her father a great deal, um, so that she is bereft and without pretty much without friends. So he becomes, Holmes becomes her friend, her mentor, her teacher. And you reach the end of the book when she's 19, and it's um, somewhat questionable about where their relationship is going. But when I when I was writing the books, I the following book I couldn't write, so I had to skip it over and start the third book um, where they are a married couple. And I had to then look at their relationship and how would it work? What would be the structure of this particular partnership? Um, and, and how would the balance of power be in that? Because, I mean, I'm married to a man who is considerably older than I am, and there's no way around that. There is an authority with age that that is hard to reach a balance, especially when you start out young. I mean, now there's not a great deal of difference between 50 and 80, whereas there's a lot of difference between 25 and 55, as Russell finds. So that that middle book where she has choices to make and she has to decide whether she wants to be an independent person or she wants to ally herself with this rather peculiar man um, was was a very tricky book to write. And actually, to tell you the truth, I expected more people would have severe problems with the idea of of an older man marrying not just a younger woman but a woman who had been his student. And I, I, but I have very few. I mean, occasionally I'll have someone, but. Well, when you, I have to ask, did you consider Beekeeper's Apprentice the start of a series? When you start, thought it out, did you say series? You know, it's difficult because when you start out, you never believe that you're going to write anything other than what you're doing. And the fact that, you know, eventually you can sell books and actually make a living off of this thing really doesn't enter into it. I was writing because I loved reading and I loved the idea of writing and there was this book and there it was and it was perfect unto itself. Um, But I think looking at it, it only makes sense as the beginning of a series. Looking at how, how Mary speaks 
and how the book is structured. I must have been looking at it as the beginning of a series from the very beginning. So, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, it, it probably wasn't as rare a thing in, in, in the period of time which you were writing about for a, a teacher to marry, perhaps. A, I know my grandfather married his teacher, and, mm-hmm. or my great-grandfather, and, I'm, and there was a considerable age difference there. And I'm, it seemed to, When I read that, it just seemed to me that was probably... It was was probably less of a problem then than it might be considered now. Yeah, the problem would not be so much in the idea as the as the shift in the relationship mm. between authority and student and to equals. Right. And so the, the, it was necessary in the first and in the second book to establish Mary as an equal to Holmes, um, emotionally and psychologically and in her abilities. So. And that's kind of the remarkable thing about Laurie's series, that, 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 that you could write a Mary Russell novel with no Sherlock Holmes in it at all, and people would, they, they love the character Mary Russell. I mean, it, it, she has this life of her own that's, that's um, I, I, in fact, I think people don't read the books now necessarily for Sherlock Holmes. Say that quietly, Mitch. Okay. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> edit, edit. <laughs> no, I think that if, uh, you know, if I threatened to kill Holmes off, people would rise up and, and, and you know. That's <laughs> part of the joy of the series is, that is, the, um, is the two people. They are very similar, right. but yet their differences occasionally lead to a very interesting clashing of horns. And right. the fact that Mary occasionally gets the better of, of Holmes is, yeah. I mean, that's the fun part for me to that's, write. That's and I'm assuming it's a fun yeah. part to read. So, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, it's nice when that happens. <laughs> well, there's a lot of you, – you also have a lot of fun – Playing with the Holmes legend, you you get a lot of humor and, and entertainment value. Just I find of, the books immensely amusing. But I, <laughs> I do too. I think they're just they're they're an absolute hoot, but they're also beautifully written. I want to talk a little bit about adaptations. One of the reasons maybe that Holmes has survived so well literarily is that he's been adapted so well, and it was able to be adapted. The Basil Rathbone films you mentioned, scores of people of famous people who are now well well known artists and writers got cut their tooth with the, those and the more recent Jeremy Brett adaptations were also quite peerless um and this works also into the art of pastiche of taking something that beyond the derivative and into the, your own original sense of it tell me how, how much of a part did, did the adaptations play if any at all for either of you and how do you work from that point where you're copying somebody to making it your own? How do you work yourself past that point? Well, I can, I can, I can say that the Doyle stories weren't they, – they only became a problem – or not a problem. They, they were a bit of a problem. They, they, they only, I had to only really look at them seriously, although it took a, a great deal of time when I wrote the glass harmonica sections because I don't write like that. And it's, it was just like a, a whole other world of writing – that I had a hard time. And this may explain also why I wrote it in omniscient voice, uh, most of it. But, um, but what I did rely on quite heavily for the book and it, for, for background information and biographical detail was William S. Baring Gould's Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street, which is this kind of fake biography of Sherlock Holmes. It's pe- published, I believe, and it's not in print anymore. It's a shame. Somebody should bring it out. But I think it was published in the early 60s, and it, he follows him. You know, Baring Gould was a great Sherlockian and scholar, and I think he did the original annotated Sherlock Holmes. And, okay. and he, he 
uses the Doyle stories. He sets up a chronology with them. And then at some point, he goes into the, 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 the kind of unknown area of Holmes' uh, retirement. And I got the royal jelly from him. And in fact, I credit the book in there. I didn't totally rip it all off. And he even goes all the way to Holmes's uh, death in, at the age of 103. So I use that. I just went with this idea that this is the biography of Sherlock Holmes. And so I, I use that as my timeline. And, and a lot of the information I got was from that. Interestingly enough, a lot of the, um, the external information that Baring Gold based his biography, his so-called biography on, was um, not just made up out of thin air. It was actually the story of his own father, Sabine Baring Gold, who oddly enough enters into one of my books as <laughs> a character. So <laughs> it's, I was reading the the autobiography of Sabine Baring Gold and came across all these little facts and thought, I've read this before. <laughs> Where did this come Wait from? a minute. <laughs> did he live to be 103? Is that, is that no, the same? No, he was only 90, oh, 93, okay. 94, yeah. something like that. Yeah, so sorry. <laughs> I want to ask you a little bit just about dealing with the Holmes canon in the Doyle estate. What is Sabine Baring Gould your ultimate reference story? Um, I would have to say that the stories themselves are. When I, whenever there's a doubt, I go back and look at the canon. Is what is what they call the, the Conan Doyle stories. Um, and actually, I have written a couple of things and stuck them on my website, so that if you you know if you want to look at the Laurie King definitive version of the life of Holmes, um, I put a chronology on there which is based on a couple of the Conan Doyle stories. Not the chronology that's um, that W.S. Baring Gould um, constructed, but you know Conan Doyle wasn't writing um, a structured biography of a man. He was writing fun short stories to support a family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he got a lot of details crisscrossed, and sometimes he forgot that he'd already had something happen during this month. And you know it was you, you have to work around that, but it is a game. Yeah. Um, I mean, Shalakian criticism is known as the game, and you have to treat it very seriously. As as um, Dorothy L. Sayers said, you have to treat it as seriously as a county cricket game at Lords. I mean, you have to pretend that you have every right to do this, and <laughs> you're really being a serious academic. So that um, so that when I write a chronology about Holmes and based on you know one of the short stories, I, I it is footnoted. I am an academic after all. How about the estate? Have have either of you had dealings with the Doyle estate, or uh, is there such a? Th- <laughs> uh, uh, we should move on to the next question. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> he wants all the juice here. Uh, uh, well, I, I haven't. I, back in the day with John Bennett Shaw, he was a he was he, Saul Cohen was a, a lawyer for the Conan Doyle estate, and he was in Santa Fe. And John was somehow involved with. Dame Jean Conan Doyle at the time and and the estate. That's as close as I've had any dealings with it. And it's been a, so far I haven't had, heard a word from anything or anybody supposedly related with the Conan Doyle estate, whoever they may be. Publishers generally assume that Holmes is in the public domain. I mean, it would be very difficult to make a legal argument that um, that his copyright has extended. Um, when you find you find Holmes selling everything from you know soap powder to to bug spray, I mean you know, you know really it's very difficult to make an argument that this man is is still under copyright. I did have a period of time where I could not publish in Britain because when Britain joined the common market, um, its copyright laws changed, and so there was a three year period where I couldn't get published there. But I'm now back. 
Um, there is a problem still going on with um, with film adaptations because the Conan Doyle estate there um, will not approve film projects without major uh, involvement, and that doesn't end until I think it's 2007. So at that point, it really all the doors are open. At that point, we may see some films of these move of these books. Eh? One never knows. And, and speaking of films, uh, Mitch, you, your novel, Tideland, is coming out. It just premiered at Con. Did it? It, it, it actually didn't make Con because at the last minute, Terry decided um, that, that he wasn't ready to let it go. It was on standby for a long time, and so I was all geared up. I should have come back here with uh, a tan from Con, but uh, it, he, he pulled it back to finish some of the small CGI stuff. So they'll probably debut it at the Toronto Film Festival in September, but it'll, it'll also be out in um, – uh, Europe and Japan in September, and and not so sure yet when the there's some incredulous people who are a little upset by the content of it over here. So hopefully we'll uh, resolve that, and it'll it'll be out here at some point. I'm just not sure when, but uh, it's 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 going to be interesting. We'll see. See if I'll have to move. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the novel about Tideland. Yeah, Tideland. It's a <laughs> it's about a small girl whose father, her parents are. Um, heroin addicts and uh, the mother dies and the father takes the the daughter she's 11 I think in the book out to this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in Texas to kind of get away from everything and hide out and he dies and then from that point it becomes something very strange so uh, it, it involves human taxidermy and um, Alice in Wonderland and um, this is a joy for the entire family I'm sure <laughs> 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 and in Terry Gilliam's very capable hands it became something even uh, stranger <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll see but uh, uh, what I've seen of it though I will say this we they were edit when we were up in Canada they were editing it um, as they were, he was editing it as he was shooting. He was trying to get a rough edit, probably so he wouldn't have to go back to Saskatchewan uh, in the winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we got to watch about 30 minutes of it. And, and while it, all, it looked like a Terry Gilliam film and what you expect, it also was incredibly beautiful. And I think it was just the sparseness of the landscape and that Terry Gilliam wide-angle lens that he loves so much that just gives it this strange... So I guess it's a bit like a Terrence Malick film on acid. It has a kind of <laughs> days in heaven gone wrong feeling to it. <laughs> Well, that sounds quite entertaining. It'll, it'll do really well in Santa Cruz, don't you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they'll move back up here or move back up here or move here and hide out. We've been speaking with Mitch Cullen. His new novel is A Slight Trick of the Mind. And with Laurie R. King, her new novel forthcoming is Locked Rooms. Thank you very much, Mitch and Laurie. Thank, Thank you, Rick.